electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, Ray Dalio on 500 years of empires. What we're seeing now happen has played out many, many times in history. The founder of one of the world's largest hedge funds in history on rising prices. Cash is not a safe investment, is not a safe place because it will be taxed by inflation. And competing with a new economic empire in China. If you look at the word country in China, it consists of two characters, state, family. And we're heading into the metaverse, how NFTs are transforming donations this Giving Tuesday with venture capitalist Bill Tai. We're right at the beginning of what could be a structural change where any cause, any community of interest can get their members engaged and fuel their causes in a low friction way. But first, fears of the Omicron variant spooking just about everybody. People are just preparing for the idea that the reopening could get pushed back a little bit by a number of months. And Twitter's CEO shakeup, all on today's podcast. It's Tuesday, November 30th, 2021, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Futures plunging after the Moderna CEO reiterated the same Omicron concerns that he told us about yesterday. This time, I guess maybe it was in print. I don't know. We put it in print, too. We'll talk about what else could be at play. You never know. Let's talk about those uh, Stefan Bonsell comments, uh, because that's what appears to be Uh, moving the futures lower, though, as Joe said, he made similar comments to us. Uh, He also made some comments to the FT, which published that in an interview with him, uh, Stefan Bunsell, of course, the CEO of Moderna, uh, where he said that he expects vaccine efficacy to drop against the Omicron variant. Now, Squawk viewers will remember that he told us pretty much the same thing at about 7 a.m. yesterday. We believe this virus is highly infectious. Uh, we need to get more data to confirm this, but it seems to be much more infectious than Delta, which, of course, is problematic. Given the large number of mutations, it is highly possible that the efficacy uh, of the vaccine, all of them, is going down. But we need to wait for the data to know if this is true and how much is it going down. And he said it would take several weeks to gather more data about the vaccine efficacy. Now, his comments to the FD also coming just hours after Fed Chair Jay Powell, in prepared comments to Senate lawmakers ahead of testimony today, said that the recent uptick in COVID cases poses a threat to the U.S. economy and muddle an already uncertain inflation outlook. But you'd think in certain ways, guys, that that second part, the Jay Powell comments, first of all, I don't understand why the markets are reacting the way they are right now, given those comments have been out as far as I could tell, at least 24 hours, if not longer. The second part is that if you look at the Jay Powell comments, they're sort of like the Bill Ackman comments, which is to say, well, you know, if this is going to cause a problem for the economy, he didn't say that he was going to, uh, you know, stop tapering uh, any sooner or, 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 you know, let the punch ball go on longer. But you'd think he would. 
He said, though, that it, it, it created problems for both of the Fed's mandates, uh, both the unemployment well, picture, because, you, because you, people won't want to come the around. the problem on one side and inflation with supply and all that. And the Fed can't, fix, the Fed can't fix that. It's a stagflation. can't make people come back. Yeah. It's a specter of stagflation. It's, you know, if, if supply chain problems are going to cause um, uh, prices to go up and you know, the 10-year the is telling us that growth is going to be affected by reclosing in whatever area you want to look at. Maybe it's it not widespread, but at least international right. travel. And, and yeah. I mean, are we going to Davos? Uh, Did you guys think about that? Uh, I, I mean, I'm planning on it. I've, I've got my plan set it, up. I'm I, I, planning don't for you think, I think it's, I don't know. Well, we, people, I've, it's below our pay grade uh, to make those decisions. Um, but someone's going to make those. Uh, some, I'm kidding. Uh, that, that was for management. That was a joke. Uh, below our, but but someone's going to make decisions. And you know, places are very risk averse. I can't imagine. I don't want to get stuck <laughs> not in being Europe. Able to come back. Do you? Not in a place I get put up uh, uh, <laughs> over there. Um, and, and no room serve. No, you can't even get food. I eat pizza like three times a day. Well, Swiss pizza. Part of the, I don't know part what of the question is. is going to be, do they require, what's the definition of fully vaccinated? Are you fully vaccinated after two shots? Or now that you are seeing this, do you have to have a booster shot to do some of these things? I think those you know, are bon, questions. Bon, Boncel yesterday said to us, we had a long conversation about when a new vaccine that was catered right. to Omicron would be ready. And he said early 22, why would we have been talking about the need for a rejiggered vaccine if, if he wasn't saying that the, the uh, so I don't understand why. They, why they don't, later they don't in the know day. for sure. I think it'll be a couple of weeks before they know if this, if, but, if but this he, is actually right. available. But, but, but we knew that there might be a problem. Why is the market reacting this way, right? Right. We knew it wouldn't be, markets move, right? It's what is it, 2%, it's not that, that, it's a big, it's 400 points. Yesterday when we were rebounding 300, it was a slight rebound. Today when we're down 400, it's right. a, you know, it's a resumed crash. But you're so. still talking about only a couple of percentage points. If, yeah. If you're looking at the total, like down nine. 900, up 200, down 400. Uh, literally, it's a couple of percentage points at this point. So it, it, people are just preparing for the idea that the reopening could get pushed back a little bit by a number of months. I, I like think that's kind of how people are going about looking at this. But right. Andrew, back to your point about the Fed and those comments. Look, if, if, if the problems with the supply chain and problems with trying to get people to work, the Fed's not going to be able to fix that. The government's not going to be able right, to fix that. Right. The more money that they put out, the less likely people are to, to come in and come back to work. Yeah, um, yeah but I do. Th I, I'm sort of in the Ackman camp on this one, I think, which is if the Fed doesn't take the punch bowl away, if, if they keep it out there a little bit longer, that's probably good for equities. It's probably bad for bonds. Right. Well, there's the other side that people did say that he's going to taper quicker because we're going to have uh, bigger inflationary right. concerns. Well, that so would there's, be the other, a, right. there's a yin and there's a, you know, there's either or. So I don't know. Uh, I just like Bill. I just like the Ackman low. That's that's my favorite Ackman call uh, because that really and we're doubled the market from where from where, uh, you know, hell was um, was was breaking this. I, I would like to know um, what the cases look like in terms of severity, not just transmission, because right. well, you know, this we're, seeing we're, anecdotal, because, we're seeing some anecdotal evidence that, that it's Africa, not that. You want to talk? Go everybody's ahead. so young. No, I was just going to say the problem is that everybody's so young in South Africa. It's not a problem. It's maybe, maybe a benefit, but we're, never, we're, we don't, we're not going to know for a couple of weeks because everybody's so young there, because the average age is so young that everything well, looks mild and hopefully it is mild. But it's hard to take away 
It would be a problem if it was a really serious uh, case and it was in young people, for example. Right. So, I mean, we should be 100%. gratified that even it's, young people have a stronger immune system and it seems to be mild cases. That's tough to take that in a negative way. Hopefully, it, you know, is, Delta was so much more transmissible or, or contagious than the original. It could this, I've read things that this could be a multiple of times like as contagious as, as Delta. Right. Yeah, which would or be. 500 times, 500%, yeah. Yeah. So do you get the, do you, that's the other thing. So you definitely want to get the booster that's not, the third boot yep. or the, the third shot that's not catered to this one specifically, but get it anyway with the notion that you may be getting another one in early next year, that if we needed one that was specifically used for, and you guys know that Omicron, you, you must have noticed, Becky, that it's a jumble anagram. Omicron, it's a jumble anagram for, I haven't noticed that, let me write it down, hold on. You'll get it. I, I had to check a few times because I couldn't believe it when someone pointed it out to me. Moronic, anyway, news, uh, <laughs> news just, News just, it, it, do you believe that? I mean, it really is. It's the same letters. It's not quite a palindrome, but. Uh, it is. Holy cow. It really is. We are watching shares of Twitter a day after CEO Jack Dorsey stepping down and CTO Parag Agrawal taking, taking that top job. Effective immediately, shares closing lower by about 2.74% yesterday. Now, Dorsey will remain a member of the board, but only until his term expires in 2022. He'll be succeeded as chairman by Salesforce COO Brett Taylor. Dorsey said that he decided to leave Twitter because he believes the company is ready to move on from its founders. Now, Agarwal is 37 years old and has been with Twitter for more than a decade. He had been in charge of strategy involving AI and machine learning and led projects to make tweets and users' timelines more relevant to them. But uh, big questions as to uh, what his departure really means, how it really happened, how much of it was pressure by activists like Elliott Management would seem to like uh, the, the new CEO coming in. But also, I think there's investors wondering what the strategy is going to be. I don't think the strategy looks like it's going to be dissimilar. And given uh, how um, Jack had been working at Square at the same time as Twitter, it's unclear how much of his eyes were actually on Twitter in the first place. Yeah, a lot of those changes they, they announced already, just in terms of trying to double the revenue by 2023, all of the new products that they've tried to speed up and bring to it. So I, I think a lot of the changes in terms of the strategy came already, like you said. You, you saw the scuttlebutt. It, 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 he's just going all in on crypto. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Could be. But crypto <laughs> and philanthropy. You know, I think Forbes puts him on his net worth at potentially eleven billion. I'm afraid to go. I'm still afraid to go all in on crypto. I just, I mean, I, I believe in it a lot more than a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, I, I will say that, but I'm still just waiting. For, I don't know if he's leaving just for crypto. I thought that was that's too just much. a scuttlebutt. I'm not saying it's, you know, yep. you, you probably you're on HuffPost and Mother Jones. I, I looked at Drudge and it says uh, bets on crypto yep. for why he's. Uh, so, no, I think that's been part part of it. Drudge, I don't know what think there's a lot. Anyway. It's a well, Drudgington Post. It's a Drudgington Post uh, at this point, half the time. I need a new. I'm just going to just use CNBC for all my news. I think CNBC.com. Good plan. Coming up after this break, investor Ray Dalio on market worries competing with modern China and what looking at 500 years of history taught him about timing the market. To say, here's the stock market. And I'm going to time the movement into the market. I'm going to time the movement out of the market. 
Just the way you said it is going to be a fool's journey. Squawk Pod will be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Stand Andrew by. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Welcome back to Squawk Box. Looking to the lessons of history for hints of the future is our next guest, latest principal, Bridgewater Associates founder, chairman, and co-chief investment officer Ray Dalio joins us. Dalio's new book is called Principles for Understanding a Changing World Order, and it is out now. And uh, we're thrilled to have Ray with us this morning. You've looked at uh, empires uh, on the way up and on the way down uh, over many centuries in this book. Uh, You've also looked at the different metrics with which to think about all of this. And so I'm hoping you can maybe contextualize the moment we're in today by looking at history, Ray. Yeah, the, uh, the same things happen over and over and you can't understand today without understanding the patterns and lessons of history. So I needed to do this for my own investing. Um, there were three big things that caught my attention and never happened in my lifetime before, but happened many times in history before. And then two others that became apparent. Well, first, um, the Z- the financial. What does it mean to try to raise living standards by producing a lot of debt and printing money? Well, how does that move through the system? Second, um, the internal order and disorder. And when you have large wealth gaps and political gaps, um, and when the uh, causes that people are behind are more important to them than the system, the system is in jeopardy, that internal conflict. Uh, The third, of course, is the rise of a great power in the form of China. And we go back in history and we see how the great power conflict is important. The the fourth, which I only really discovered in the book, is these once in a hundred year type of um, nature events. Pandemics, uh, floods and uh, droughts have killed more people than wars. And, And then what comes through in the study of history is the power of uh, inventiveness, human adaptation. And so what we see this playing out every day in the form of the battle, for example, between nature and technology. And only by seeing those patterns um, and then understanding that could I deal with uh, what's happening now. Because you see that almost every subject that you're talking about is in one of those five categories. And it's how they relate together. So when we think about vaccines now, for example, we know what monetary policy will be as a result of that. We know what impact that will have on the markets as a result of that. Only by seeing that dynamic over a period of history could I deal with what's going on now. Ray, it's a it's a fascinating book. And, and I learned so many things. It's, it's very hard to put a coherent narrative together that really takes you through 
you know, many centuries and, and, and provide sort of a framework to look at all of this. Considering that framework and considering the, the sort of nature pandemic issue that you're talking about, but then also what you think the Fed invariably has to do, what do you think today they invariably have to do? Because I think right now, for a lot of investors, that is an open question. Well, I, th I, th I don't think it's much question. Uh, what happens is if the pandemic comes along, and we have uh, the associated economic problems with it. Um, the Fed will print money, um, and because if they don't, uh, we'll have a political um, clash. And so they'll produce uh, money and credit. The central government will send out checks in the same way, and it'll do that, and that'll reverberate through the society in the same way. You can't raise living standards by raising the amount of money and credit in the system, because that's just more money chasing the same number of goods. Right. So over a, that, that's that'll be the dynamic. It'll be it'll affect financial markets in the ways that we've seen, and it'll also, of course, affect the inflation rate. It won't raise living standards in an important way because, uh, as I say, it's it, it's more money, and so there's that dynamic that'll have political consequences. And we'll see we're seeing that now as inflation then begins to bite, then that has political consequences. So it's that dynamic. What I'm trying to convey in the book and in the way that I'm thinking, I'm not ideological. I'm just mechanical. I just want to show the cause effect relationships that repeat over and over and over in history. And that's um, you know, that's it. There is a chapter in the book which is about the value of money and how that works. Through the centuries, through time, it's the same thing. What we're seeing now happen has played out many, many times in history. So it's like watching the movie over again, and that's why I wanted to pass it along. But, Ray, if, if, if you're Jay Powell right now and you're trying to weigh inflation on one side and employment on the other, you see supply chain problems potentially coming, especially with this new variant on one end, but then you have, you're, you're still trying to, to solve for the employment side of this. What, what do you do? You, you keep printing because printing might create more inflation. Yes. Look, look, let's be clear. There's the perspective of what an individual should do. And then there's the perspective of what a policymaker will do. Um, the, he will be caught or the Federal Reserve will be caught between the rock and a hard place um, and the politics that exist at this time. Um, um, mean that just imagine an economic downturn. Um, we're at each other's throats um, under um, now when we have all this money and credit has come out and there's almost a sugar high. Just imagine if we had an economic downturn, what that would mean. And, and, and just play that through. It's almost a type of civil war between different kinds of state rights and so on and so forth. So the situation that we're in, which has happened repeatedly, is that there's not enough money around. And the only way you get the money is to tax it. And then when you tax it and then people get they don't like it. So the easiest thing to do is to print money and to produce money and credit. So we can expect that thing to happen. So just as an investor, um, I have to sit here and I think, what is my next move and how do I what do I play with that? For example, real interest rates will come down. That would be good for inflation index bonds, by way of example. So anyway, 
what I'm, what I'm trying to convey is the, that mechanism. And, and we got ourselves into the circumstance because we didn't have to handle the fundamentals the best possible way. Let's talk about what good fundamentals are. Good fundamentals are that you earn more than you spend um, and that you have, a, therefore, a good income statement and a good balance sheet. Right. And you do that by being productive. And you also have um, internal cooperation, competition, and so on in a healthy way to make you more productive and you don't have those political problems. But you see repeatedly in history this arc or that when you have this confluence of things happening together, you have the dynamics. So what I just wanted to convey, right. and I needed, I wrote this, I, I did this research for myself to make these investment decisions. What I needed to do was to see the mechanics of that. And that's what I'm really conveying. Yes, he'll, there's a rock and a hard place. Ray, in, in terms of just bottom lining it, for, for those in the audience this morning, that uh, beyond uh, thinking about buying your book are thinking about whether they should be invested in the market, putting more money in the market. And I'm thinking about equities right now, taking money out of the market. How, how do you value this market today? I think that just the way you said it is going to be a fool's journey um, uh, to, to say, here's the stock market and I'm going to time the movement into the market, I'm going to time the movement out of the market. Okay, you know what that means? Okay, you're going to out uh, guess what the next uh, variant move is and what the next uh, other thing is. A lot of things depend on a lot of other things and the world and, and everything readjusts. What has to happen, I think, is investors, <clears throat> most importantly, have to realize two things. First, that uh, cash is not a safe investment, is not a safe place, because it will be taxed by inflation. There will not be an interest rate that will anywhere near compensate. And it seems good because it's not volatile, but you're paying a tax of a few percent a year on that. So A, stay out of that. And then B, know how to balance a portfolio. Because the way portfolios work, it's almost like um, for some part, something happens, um, another thing happens. In other words, what, what you can see in the markets today is that, um, let's say, when equities go down because growth expectations falter and there's a greater likelihood of easing, then you see the bond market go up. And when you see other markets gold, you're seeing. Watch the right. market action on every day and you could see those relationships. But be, wealth is not destroyed as much as it is transferred. And if you know how to balance those investments, we, we do it in a, what we call an all-weather portfolio. But if you know how to balance those investments, that's the most important thing. Be in a safe, well-balanced portfolio. You can uh, reduce your risk without reducing your return. And you, can, you will not market time this. Because right. even if you were a great market timer, you're, the things that are happening can change the world. So it changes what should be priced into the markets. Hey, Ray, one of the things you do write about is China. Um, some, some would argue that you have a, a generous or, or, or more sympathetic view to China than perhaps uh, some of the most uh, hawks, uh, if you will, about China. Uh, but you think that there's sort of an inevitability to the transfer of wealth of sorts. Well, okay, two things, China transfer of wealth. Um, I, I just know China very well. And I come as a perspective, uh, with a perspective as an investor. I've been going there since 1984. I have, I, I know 
um, leaders and I know how they're thinking and I know the moves that they're making in a detailed way. And I'm just trying to share what that perspective is, because I think a lot of people make stereotype typical um, moves. And I think you have to really understand. First thing you have to understand, because it has been a remarkably successful place since I started going there in 1984. Per capita has increased by 26 times and so on. So to not understand it or to approach it with a great bias is a great disservice. OK, in terms of the element of, uh, let's say, um, a transfer of wealth or let's call it common prosperity. Yes, there's a world in this world right now. There is a much more there's a move to common prosperity. Not I think that um, that that move, what does right. it mean at a technical level? That's not take your money away. But here I, I would say what are called progressives here are much more left than what we would call progressives or or whatever the Chinese policies are doing. Um, but yes, worldwide, there has to be common prosperity, or let's call it broad prosperity. And the question is whether that's going to come about by productivity or not. It doesn't mean that you're going to have like a communism that's going to take all of that. There's going to be a lot of productivity in China. And so, again, diversifying the portfolio. Um, You know, you look at the United States elsewhere, you have to diversify. One of the quick questions I just want to ask you on China, though, is... Clearly, there's, there's human rights issues. Uh, there's questions right now about this Chinese tennis player, uh, Peng Shui. There have been questions about Jack Ma. H- how do you think about that piece of it when it relates to investing there? Well, I can't be an expert in those types of things. What I basically do, and I, for 50 years I've um, uh, I invest all over the world, I look uh, to... Uh, whatever the rules are, the, if the government has a policy that I should do a certain thing and so on. But I can't be an expert in all of those uh, those particular dynamics of, of that. I'm, I really have no idea. They, um, so the guidance of the, you know, the government and is, you know, the most important thing. It's um, these are political. It's like and then I look at the United States and I say, well, what's going on in the United States? And should I not invest in the United States because other things and not our own human rights issues or other things, you know, and I'm not trying to make political comparisons. I'm basically just trying to follow the rules, understand what's going on and, and invest uh, properly. You recognize, I, I think that what's going on in the United States and there are there. Look, there are things that happen in the United States that I don't agree with that. I imagine you don't agree with. But I think that those things are different than some of the things we see happening in China. People aren't uh, the government isn't disappearing people, for example. Okay, look, you want to get into the policy of disappearing people. I'll I'll give a little bit of a perspective of that. Okay, what they have is an autocratic system. um, And um, one of the uh, leaders described it, he said, that uh, the United States is a country of individuals and individualism, um, and that's what it's uh, and that's what it's about. He said in China, it's an extension of the family. He said, um, uh, if you look at the word country in China, it consists of two characters: state, family, and that has to do with Confucian. And it's very much a top-down. And as a top-down country. What they're doing is that it's that kind of like a strict parent. They behave like a strict parent and they go through that. That is their approach. We have our approach. Um, that, that's a question. Uh, so um, the, the notion of 
whatever they're doing in terms of calling in people and then um, and then uh, behaving in a certain way. That's their approach. Uh, if I if I picked that, uh, evaluated all approaches around the world um, in all countries, I'd be in a bind to try to find out, you know, where do I invest and so on. It's just not my domain, and and I'll leave it to the government to make those decisions. Um, and that's that's my basic approach. I have a job to do, and you know that's how I'm trying to do it, consistent with the rules. And I and I can't say that. That's like with um, kids and watching video games. Their approach is um, we don't want our kids to watch these trashy video games X amount. So we'll look, control the type of games and they'll control how many hours it is. In the United States, that we would believe that most people would believe it's a parental uh, student decision. I can't tell you which is better, but the one thing I can tell you is um, in this competition, the only thing that'll matter, most important thing that'll matter is how strong we are, okay? And so if we can be, if we can earn more than we spend and we be productive and we can be good with each other and don't have a conflict that undermines us, um, then we will be strong. So it's a competition between systems. And that I think most importantly, let's do the things that are right to make us strong and be effective in that competition. I want to thank you for joining us this morning. Congratulations on the new book. It is called Principles for Understanding a Changing World Order, and it is out now. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, the trendiest way to give this Giving Tuesday. Could it be on the blockchain? A conversation with Zoom's first investor and one of the earliest bettors on the metaverse and crypto, Bill Tye. If you think about Silicon Valley and its role in modernizing the world's economies, it used to be that all electronics devices were made out of things that looked like light bulbs. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. It's Giving Tuesday, and what better place to go virtually, of course, than the metaverse? Confused? Okay. People and companies have been donating cryptocurrencies for a while, since 2014 among the earliest adopters. And those donations, though trendy, worked similarly to a stock donation, so nothing revolutionary, really. But now, with the advent of NFTs, a new option has emerged for nonprofits, royalties, donations in perpetuity. If a portion of an NFT or non-fungible digital token sale goes to charity, then the next time it's traded, a percentage goes to charity again. As the NFT increases in value, so does the donation. It's a pretty exciting model. I jumped on a call with one of the earliest crypto optimists. Hi, I'm Bill Tai. I'm a venture capitalist and I'm also a co-founder and chairman of Metagood. Metagood is Bill's latest venture. It's an FT marketplace that enables donations with every sale, and it has a pretty impressive group of backers. Charlie Lee that invented Litecoin, the guy that invented Etherscan, it's Richard Branson's kids, it's Owen Wilson, Woody Harrelson. No surprise there. Bill is well-connected. He was an early backer of over 100 companies, including Twitter and TweetDeck, and he was the first investor in Zoom, the pandemic game changer, and 
our platform of choice for this particular conversation. Can you hear me? I'm going to cut my video for a second. My 10-year-old's on Roblox right now <laughs> next to me, so he's using up all of our bandwidth. Bill is also a famous kite server, fun fact, and he's backed a few blockchain biggies, one of, for example, and Dapper Labs, which is the company behind CryptoKitties and NBA Top Shot, which he'll explain. Everybody that has been watching the NFT space um, probably has heard of NBA Top Shot. Mm -hmm. um, and NBA Top Shot, for those that don't know it that well, it's basically a uh, a marketplace where fans can buy a little video clip of special moments in basketball games, just like a baseball fan could have bought a trading card. And these video moments are registered uh, on a blockchain, meaning a chain of blocks of information that is kind of an accounting system for these things. And once you buy it, it's yours and there's only one of those. So it's non-fungible, meaning you can't like just swap them with identical other things because everything's unique, like a baseball card might be. And so uh, so when uh, that company had formed, before they did Top Shot, they created a little game on the uh, blockchain called CryptoKitties, where you could basically uh, take ownership of a digital cat. It's a little drawing of a cat. But every one of the little drawings was unique. So they all had unique digital DNA. And you could basically breed your cat with someone else's cat and it would have unique babies and you could sell those babies, <laughs> uh, baby cats, baby kittens. And uh, anyway, so CryptoKitties was one of the first smash hits in uh, kind of the consumer blockchain. It became one of the first people to leverage non-fungible tokens or NFTs. Uh, for good. Would you mind explaining the Hanu Kitty NFT? Yeah. As they were starting to ramp up and as I was deciding to fund them, um, I told the management team, you know, I love these digital cats. They're very cute. And this thing is very fun, but I really would love to see this kind of activity, do something good for this planet in real life. Mm -hmm. So I will write a check, but I need you to do something special for me, which is to create one very special crypto kitty for an ocean charity gala that I'm throwing in a couple months. <laughs> and first, I think they must have gone cross-eyed because cats don't like water. But they, <laughs> they did come up with a really cute icon, which was a crypto kitty that had a turtle shell and some fins. And I managed to auction that off for $25,000 uh, four years ago. And gave the proceeds to Captain Paul Watson uh, under the condition that he park his ship in front of the turtle nesting area off the island of Antigua. Um, and he, he, he did that and he protected the turtles by having people walk the beaches 24 by 7 for weeks to make sure that the you know, poor people on the island didn't catch the turtles and eat them. Uh, and that was the first ever um, NFT for Ocean Charity for a real life application. That, uh, that marked the beginning of the idea for what became MetaGood this year. So we're talking about innovating all different things with crypto, with blockchain. Right now we're talking about how you helped innovate charitable giving, um, which is kind of the first time that philanthropy has evolved. When we talk about crypto and blockchain and all these other tech innovations, that we think about how they disrupted legacy industries, banking, media, advertising, entertainment. 
And yet philanthropy has been sort of slow to evolve, except for now. Do you think that blockchain is the key to bringing charitable giving into kind of the 21st century? You know, I think blockchain in combination with modern digital technology in general has the capability to to make any industry a lot more efficient. Mm -hmm. And now that we're in this period where you can really empower communities of interest, um, I think that combination is incredibly powerful because blockchain gives you a couple of things. It gives you a very, very easy way to transfer value. It gives you transparency so you can see where that value goes. Mm. And it allows you to express that value in open marketplaces where you can see your item um, and kind of know where it is. And so as CryptoKitties was, was forming and building, it occurred to me that, you know, there's probably a way as a, for example, to have crypto rhinos and crypto elephants and crypto giraffes where every single endangered animal at the animal level, not the species level, could be represented by an NFT. Mm-hmm. And every time they moved on a marketplace, uh, a very large percentage of that value would spin off to, to buy food and pay the rangers to protect them. And you could actually have these things time out on a smart contract. So they only lasted 90 days. And if you didn't sell it, you lost it, went back to the pool. You know, So you could encourage things to move along. And uh, as I thought about that, I thought, you know, every single 501c3, every charity, every cause has a community of interest that cares, but there isn't a, a really low friction way to engage and transact. Mm. You know, there's a lot of social media tools now that allow you to push like emails and things like that. But in this world of web three and blockchain and and kind of modern digital engagement tools, all of those get bundled together now where the energy of a community of interest can express itself in its own currency. You know, so like, like we were talking about earlier, if you think about any brand like Starbucks, they have a virtual nation of people that like their coffee. And because there is a virtual nation of trust uh, and they know that, you know, the tokens are redeemable for cups of coffee, it's just like when colonists came to America and formed a colony and they had their own currency in Virginia or New York or any other state or the US dollar backed by gold. And so I think uh, uh, we're right at the beginning of what could be a structural change where any cause, any community of interest can, can get their members engaged and fuel their causes in a low friction way. I was talking to somebody recently who was saying, you know, not everything belongs on chain. Um, because we were talking about the the likelihood that we'll end up in this Ready Player One universe where everybody's plugged in to a headset and you know very little IRL communication with other human beings. Do you foresee a world in which everything is on chain? I mean, when we think about NFT use cases right now, everyone's super focused on art uh, and and making sure that creators have a space where they can own their own creations in a way that previously they had been unable to do. Um, But there are all these other use cases like in ticketing or even medical records. Some people believe that, you know, soon all of our medical records will be NFTs. We won't even know that they're NFTs, but there are some folks that believe, Hey, that's, that's the future we're moving toward. Where do you stand on that? Uh, I, I totally do think that we will move to a world where, where pretty much all assets are registered. Mm. And I think the way to think about that is the 
the technology waves that we have gone through in my lifetime, um, there are basically just a couple of them or three of them. You know, one was basically uh, the organization of electrons. And then the next was the organization of bits. And now we're organizing assets, right? So if you think about Silicon Valley and its role in modernizing the world's economies, it really evolved replacing vacuum tubes. And most people alive today haven't seen vacuum tubes, but it used to be that all electronics devices were made out of things that looked like light bulbs. So you would have wires uh, inside a little glass ball that you'd suck all the air out of so the wires wouldn't overheat. And once you could put those in highly replicable molten sand slivers, uh, you know, in silicon, you could build all kinds of things like laptops and now cell phones where you have a ton of power in your pocket. And uh, coincident with that was the wave of sort of organizing the way bits flowed. So you move from moving electrons around to moving bits around when the internet got built out so that uh, information could be moved anywhere pretty fast. And now that information is starting to represent assets. So if you think about, you know, the phrase, you know, Google organized the world's information, and that was pretty valuable. If you think about what it would be like to organize the world's assets, it could create tremendous efficiencies in the world in everything from value exchange around currencies to the things you mentioned, ticketing, to ownership of art, to the uh, kind of ownership and transacting of real estate, you know, so really anything, you know, the world is basically made of people that, that transact. And so all of those transactions uh, and the things that are being transacted can be recorded on blockchains indelibly at low cost. So just like, you know, the internet allowed people to send an email instead of handwriting letters or sending faxes or telexes, mm -hmm. um, we're in this world where all of it's going to be a bunch of ones and zeros. That is the show for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, listen and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.